We were looking this morning at uh, some examples of Benedict's discretion and wisdom and his insight into what the middle way means, what moderation is, and how moderation is not something that can be defined once and for all, or legislated for, really, only up to a point. Uh, but essentially, even the law, however rigid and definite the law may be, you will always need lawyers, you'll need people who can uh, uh, interpret the law or change the law. So discretion is an essential part of the achievement of this wisdom of, of moderation. And I've spoken about this middle way as a kind of knife edge, illustrated by the story of the Pierre, uh, Pierre Le Petit, who walked on the tightrope between the Twin Towers. And in fact, the middle way, as you follow it, as you sharpen it, becomes more and more narrow. So the middle way is always a narrow way. And Jesus makes this explicit. The path that leads to life is a narrow way. And few there are who find it. Whereas the other path is a broad way. And it's the easy, it's the busy, it's the busy path. So a middle way is a narrow path and it becomes increasingly narrow until it becomes so fine, so sharp, that you could say it disappears. It becomes so narrow that it becomes infinite, so small that it has no magnitude, which is, I think, the definition in mathematics of a point. A point has uh, space, it exists in a particular space, but there is no magnitude to it. You can't measure it, but it's there. So it's a paradox that could also be used to describe the divine mystery of God. But we experience this, not we can understand this, not really through language, philosophy, or ideas, or even poetry, but we understand it best, and maybe only understand it, really through experience. So it would be good to reflect a little bit about what we mean by experience, why we talk about meditation as a way of experience, for example, rather than a way of theory, or dogma, or ideology. But before we do that, let's just, let's just stay with this image of the journey of life as a journey to God, into wholeness, as a narrow path that becomes increasingly narrow because it leads to life which has no limits. So there's a paradox expressed in words, but it's something that we live experientially existentially uh, when we introduce into our life 
a commitment to that path, a particular commitment to it. And it's a commitment to a practice or to a path, not to an idea or an ideology. So we have to have some way, some actual way, of uh, making that commitment. And the most obvious one in the Gospel tradition is to love, to love your neighbour, whether your neighbour is an enemy or a friend. You love them indiscriminately. There is no limit to your love. In the teaching of Jesus, we have to develop a capacity to love as the Father loves, shining on good and bad alike, um, and being kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is a perfection in love, not a moral perfection, but a perfection in love. And love in its essential nature transcends morality. Love and do what you like, St. Augustine says. So, we could say then that the fundamental commitment we have to make to any God-centered life is a commitment to love and to everything associated with that, such as forgiveness and um, but again, how do we do that? How do we learn to love? Especially the people we find unattractive or the people who have hurt us. How do we learn to love? Well, one answer to that is that we have to learn to love ourselves. It requires an inner work, personal work of transformation, dealing with our own issues, with our own um, blockages and our own bad habits and our own conditioning. We have to deal with that. And that's what we call spirituality. That's essentially the work of prayer and the life uh, that flows from that uh, experience of prayer. The deeper the prayer, the deeper the therapy, which is the work of healing and integration that happens uh, through, through this practice. So we move from the big picture, the big, more abstract picture of this narrow path that leads to life, to this, this understanding of universal love, to uh, working on ourselves. In other words, we might say learning to love ourselves is the first step before we can learn to love anybody else. Now, in the spiritual understanding of this work, this is not just, as it were, a personal therapy or a, um, a, a self-centered exercise. It is actually the discovery from within, in our deepest solitude, and often in our deepest woundedness and emptiness, that we are loved. That's how we learn to love ourselves, is by discovering in the place where we least expect it, to, that we are loved. 
So when we understand, if we understand meditation in certainly in a Christian way, we understand it as a school of love, an experience of love that grows deeper and changes us. And what is love? God is love. And we are asked, invited, and expected to love as God loves, with agape, with unbounded generosity and inclusiveness. So what is love? Love is attention. God created everything that exists with a look, with a word, with a gaze, with attention. And that uh, attention, the creative attention that God gives, creation is a giving of self, giving of God's self in this form. That's why we find the divine in everything, because everything is a manifestation of the divine gaze of love, the divine act of pure creative attention. So, love is this work of attention that creates or recreates, in other words, heals us to be healed, is to be recreated, or reformed, or remade, or reconciled. So in, in deep prayer then, this is prayer that is, by deep prayer, I mean prayer that is not <coughs> directed outwards or upwards to God as, a, as a, a, an external force or power uh, outside or above us. But deep prayer means that we have taken this inner journey, this narrow path, inwards. And we are doing this work of learning to love ourselves and to be healed uh, through the work of attention in deep prayer itself. Prayer itself is this work of love. We see that more and more, I think, in meditation. And the more we learn from the experience, the more we come to understand what it is we're doing and what is the mystery we are entering into, what the silence that we are working at really means. It is the silence of, of love, of a universal, all-inclusive and all-self-giving attention. So, deep in our meditation, or deep in ourselves, and meditation takes us to that place, to that point, we uh, more and more fully experience the fact that we are receiving the attention of God and this is our actual creation. This loving attention of God is what calls us into being. So in meditation we can say we go back to our heart. Well, that means we're going back to our source, to this mysterious center mysterious because we cannot measure it, 
or conceptualize it, but we can know it and experience it. So we go into the inner room, as Jesus says on, good, on, on Ash Wednesday. Go into your inner room, your private room, he says, and pray there in that space, that tiny space which, which contains the Father, the presence of the Father, the presence of the Creator. So everything is there in that tiny space. So we speak about this, about meditation then, as a middle way, but also a narrow path, because to focus your attention is to narrow. But the experience is, is that when we narrow our attention, we are able to love more fully and inclusively, more like God. So there is an expansion that happens as we narrow. So language forces us to use this kind of paradox, but of course it's at the heart of the Easter story that we will be, that we are preparing for uh, during Lent. The narrow path that led Jesus to the cross, but then opened up into the infinite expansion of the resurrection. So, the middle way is a narrow path, <clears throat> but it's also often described as a steep path. Uh, a couple of years ago I was in Mount Sinai. It's a 1700-year-old monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai in Egypt. <clears throat> and uh, we went for a we, went, we hiked up, of course, to the top of Mount Sinai, where um, Moses received the, 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 the commandments. And uh, I was suffering from a bit of an uh, infection, a cold or something. And um, I, I didn't think I was going to make it. It was just the steepest, most difficult walk I could ever remember having. And uh, if, there, if there hadn't been somebody there who was 20 years older than me, who was still walking, I think I would have given up. I wasn't going to give up. So, um, we, but it was very steep for everyone. And now the monastery is at the foot of the mountain. And I don't know how often the monks walk up to the top, but I think probably after they've been a novice, probably not very often. And it's a good symbol, really, is that we need, we need this, uh, this sort of regular life of the monastery. We need some regularity in our own spiritual life, in other words. We need a, a community that's stable from which we set out to climb this mountain. And, of course, we don't climb the mountain alone. It makes it much easier and much more enjoyable and meaningful if you walk it with others. So mountains and caves are very common symbols in all traditions. 
of this spiritual journey. The mountain is a symbol of having to walk up. It's a steep, a steep walk. At times you feel like giving up and going back. The cave is a symbol of depth and of interiority. And they're both powerful symbols of describing the essential experience of any commitment to the, to the middle way, to the narrow path, to the spiritual journey. And the mountain symbol, of course, as you walk up the mountain, the view gets greater and greater. When you get to the top of Mount Sinai, and you can see why Moses met God up there in the burning bush. Although the burning bush is actually in the monastery at the bottom, at least they say it is. And I was quite amused to see that there is a fire extinguisher on the wall next to it, <laughs> just in case it happened to burst into flame. Um, anyway, so as you, as you walk up the mountain, the view becomes extraordinary. You just, it's, it's like a view of mountain range after mountain range across the desert. And it's also quite extraordinary because you, when you're quite high up and if your head is turned in a certain direction, you will, um, you know, the wind is just roaring in your ears. But you move your head a little bit and it's the quietest place in the world because the wind isn't hitting you. So we went, we climbed up to the top of the mountain and meditated up there, said Mass up there and meditated there and then walked down again. So if there you get the great view. In a cave, you don't get the great view. You're giving up the view. The deeper you go into the cave, the less you see and the more dark it becomes and maybe even frightening. There might be a certain fear in walking up uh, the mountain. Might you, you might fall, you might not survive. And there's a certain fear in the cave aspect of the experience because how do you know where you're going and are there some monsters waiting in the cave that will jump out at you? So what helps us to uh, be faithful to this experience that we've started, the journey we've started, are the, uh, are, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a spiritual wisdom, a spiritual teaching that comes from a source that we love and trust. That's what keeps us going, that's our food for the journey. And for us, that is most essentially and beautifully transmitted in the, in the, in the teaching, in the words, the teachings the, uh, of the Gospel of Jesus. And I think especially in his questions, we don't read the Gospel for our daily journey just in order to have answers. It is to provide us, 
to touch us with what we need to take the next step. So just as in the 11th step, the 12 step program, they have a saying, one day at a time. So if you're in recovery from addiction, uh, you're making a real commitment to something, but you easily become impatient or discouraged, and uh, you think, how long is this going to take? And so the, the wisdom of this spiritual program, which is the 12-step program, is just take one day at a time. Stay sober for today, and then you do it tomorrow. It's like giving up smoking or changing your habits. It has to be achieved on this. We have to have the long-term goal, but we have to focus on the, the short-term, immediate uh, challenge how are we going to get through today and then do the next thing we have to do because when we have got one more day along the journey the view will be different and the experience will have taken us to a new place and therefore we need to recommit ourselves to it and then take another step so one of the questions that Jesus asks that helps us to stay focused on the journey. Questions rather than statements. One of his key questions is, what are you looking for? And every so often it's important that we stop and ask ourselves that question. Not only in terms of the spiritual journey, but also, for example, in community life, or in married life, or in teamwork, it's a good idea every so often to take a retreat. And businesses do this more and more. To go back to the essential priorities and to remember what it is we have in common, to remember what is our common goal, and to see whether we're all on the same page. So this question, what are you looking for, that Jesus asks in the beginning of the Gospel of John, is one that really accompanies us and empowers us uh, throughout our life, for the whole of the journey. And the disciples in this story, the first chapter of John, respond by asking Jesus, where are you staying? <coughs> And his reply is, come and see. So here's the question, first of all, what are you looking for? That focuses our mind, that reminds us of why we're on this journey in the first place, and do we know what we're looking for? Can we renew our uh, commitment to it? And then, from us, there is this question, where is it? Where can it be found? And the response to that from the Spirit is, well, come and see. That's the only way you'll know. And it's, I think those are, the, those are the stages by which our spiritual journey, the narrow path, is renewed day by day, each day at a time. Remember why you're here, remember what you're looking for, and then 
ask the obvious question, where is it? Where, is, where are you staying? And then, in that openness of your own question, and sincere question, you will then receive the answer in the form of discovering, rediscovering the invitation that takes you higher up the mountain and deeper into the cave at the same time. St. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century uh, spent time at Mount Sinai and uh, wrote his, one of his great works, The Ascent, uh, uh, it's called uh, uh, St. John, sorry, Saint, no, not Gregory, St. John, uh, Climacus, um, uh, wrote The Ladder of Perfection, so the journey climbing up the mountain, uses this image. And uh, Gregory of Nyssa, writing in the same mystical ambiance and tradition, um, speaks about the, the journey, the ascent to God, uses the story of Moses to illustrate it from the book of Exodus and allegorizes it, symbolizes it, sees it symbolically in terms of the inner journey. And he says that if you seek God, you will without doubt find God. Seek and you will find, Jesus said. Very encouraging and we need to repeat that to ourselves. However, he also says, but when you find God, you then almost lose God again. And you start the seeking in a new way. And this idea of a journey that, that is continuously renewing itself, it's not like the story of Sisyphus in the Greek myth, you know, the the, the king who had to push this boulder up a steep mountainside and just when he got to the top it slipped out of his hands and rolled down to the bottom again and he had to start the whole process again and he was condemned to do this for the rest of his life. That's why some people give up the spiritual path because they think that's what it's going to be like. They'll never actually get there. And in one sense you don't get there because when you get there you are then you see another mountain range, like you do from the top of Mount Sinai. So you realize there is an infinite. God is is uh, infinite simplicity. So it, 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 it spreads out further and further. So Gregory Nyssa also speaks about infinite degrees of perfection. So it's a very good way of dealing with the stress of modern lifestyle, which is often driven by the virus of perfectionism. And um, uh, if we could still remain committed to doing the best we can and achieving the best result in our work, 
nevertheless, we are conscious that we are on a journey of self-renewing uh, expansion, and so there, there, is, there are more, there are higher peaks and there are deeper caves and there are um, new kinds of perfection and wholeness that we are uh, discovering. And this is why there is this, quest, this, this language of paradox at the heart of all of the great mystical theologies and teachings because they can't express this in ordinary linear left-brain kind of language. So St. Gregory of Nyssa says, for example, the life of God transcends every beginning. Every beginning. And there are many beginnings. Every day is a new beginning. Every time we sit down to meditate, every time we come back to the mantra during the meditation, it's a new beginning. The life of God transcends every beginning. And the divine is there where the understanding does not reach. So the divine God can, is, is found in that point, which we cannot measure, in that point where our understanding simply fails. We do not understand. No one can know God. No one knows God except God himself. So this, uh, I think, this sort of language and this, this kind of uh, imagery uh, makes much more sense and is much more descriptive after we've begun the journey of meditation. Until then, it sounds pretty abstract. I remember when I was first introduced to meditation, it was at a point in my life where I had been doing a lot of reading in a lot of different traditions. And I didn't, I didn't read it so much from an academic point of view, but from a hungry point of view. I was looking for something and I was looking uh, in every book and tradition and text that I could find. And then, when I was introduced to meditation, in those few words with which John Main initiated me, I was completely confused. I couldn't understand at all what he was talking about. So, here was I, thinking that I had read a lot and knew a lot, and when I was actually given the instructions, about how to follow the path, it made no sense to me at all. So, the divine is there where the understanding <coughs> does not reach. But once you have begun to practice this narrow way and discover it to be a way of unknowing, like the cloud of unknowing, where you let go of your thoughts and words and images and concepts, as soon as, you, as soon as you've begun to follow that path in some kind of committed way, this teaching, this mystical teaching, begins to make sense. And it actually communicates at that level much more than usual, the usual dogmatic language 
of theology. And the language of theology is, it has, has two basic kinds. There's the language of, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, there's the language of the lecture room and the language of the bedroom. And the language of <coughs> mystics is the language of the bedroom. And it's also why there's so much, uh, so much uh, of, of the symbolism and the language of love in, in the mystical theology. Whereas in dogmatic, ordinary, lecture room kind of theology, it's pretty much from the head and pretty, pretty cold and bare bones. And that also illustrates the fact that not everybody is interested in reading or studying uh, the theology of the lecture room. Some people are, some people get a lot out of it, and it needs to be done because we have minds, and I think Benedict would agree, we, we, should, we should study. But not everybody's going to get much, as much out of that. But everybody understands, everybody knows love, the need for love, the language of love. So that mystical language, which is much closer to the language that Jesus speaks, is, uh, is a language that has a universal uh, meaning. And therefore, we can read the mystics as we do in, in our prayer here, uh, from sister traditions, from other traditions. I mean, you read Rumi, for example, or, or from the Bhagavad Gita, or so on, you, you, you immediately resonate with it. And you know this is the same touching, the same path, the same truth as, um, as your own tradition. The kingdom of God, Gregory says, is a mountain steep and difficult to climb. And what happens when you get to the top of the mountain? When Moses got there and he saw the burning bush, he was told to take his shoes off because he was on sacred ground. So this is what happens to us. The deeper we go into the cave of the heart, or the higher we climb the mountain of God, we, uh, we find ourselves on sacred ground the ground of our own being. God is the ground of our being. And to take your shoes off has, has been interpreted as removing your dead skin because the shoes were made of leather. So you take your shoes off, you're taking off this dead skin and you are returning to direct, direct contact between your flesh and, and the world and the, and the ground of being. So this could also be interpreted <coughs> as being renewed. Taking your dead, dead sandals off is um, renewing your way of life, conversion. Letting go of the bad habits, allowing 
good habits to form. Doing what you want in the deepest sense. Lent is a time for doing what you want. Not about this language of denying yourself is very dangerous. But it's actually the time to understand what it is you want and don't want and to see the distinction. So what you do want, you may not be doing, but now you say, I will do it because that's what I really want. And, for example, I would really, I really want to have time to meditate. Okay, take it. Or, it's the time where you realize there are things in your life that you don't want, but you find difficult to let go of because you're attached to them or you're frightened to let go of them, or you're addicted. So, let go of it. Stop it. Let go of it. So, it's doing most deeply and selflessly what it is we really want. So taking your shoes off, as Moses did, on the sacred ground, is maybe a way of describing metanoia. That turning our mind around, seeing things differently because we are allowing a change of perspective to happen. But in that process, we will often feel very confused at times. We enter into the divine darkness, as the mystics describe it. When, Mount, when Moses went up the mountain, a cloud descended on the mountain. When uh, Jesus walked up the Mount Table for the Transfiguration, uh, they were covered in a cloud. And often in the biblical stories, most mystical stories, symbolic of the mystical experience, uh, there is this presence of a cloud that seems to hide, but at the same time to be the presence of God, the experience of God. But it's, it's best described as a cloud or a darkness because our rational minds cannot make sense of it cannot process it. So to the rational mind, on its own, uh, this is pure darkness, makes no sense, as meditation made no sense to me at first. But that same darkness becomes dazzlingly bright. It's a bright cloud. And so the cloud of unknowing, the book in the 14th century, uh, says that we, we enter into this cloud of unknowing by letting go of our thoughts and words and images and letting them fall into the cloud of forgetting. So that's what we do when we meditate. We, we, we let our thoughts sort of go over the cliff edge and we forget them, we let them go even if they're good thoughts, even if we've come up with a great solution to a problem. We, we let it fall into the cloud of forgetting and we return to the mantra and that every time we return to the mantra we're sharpening that knife edge of the middle way, the narrow way. And, and the journey then takes us into this cloud of unknowing in which we will know as 
clad, as the author says, by love, not by thought. God can never be known by thought, but only by love. So, we go into this divine darkness, we go into silence, which is an absence of ideas, the letting go of ideas, the poverty of spirit. We're not looking for explanations or answers. Contemplative mind is not is not irritably looking after explanations or answers. John Keats, the romantic poet, described uh, a state of negative capability, which is the poet's way of observing the world. The poet looks at the world as it is, as we are when we, when we write our haikus, just the way it is without labelling it or layering it with any explanation or definition or trying to explain it. So, um, so this, uh, this the, 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 the cloud of unknowing allows us to let go of thought but to discover the knowledge that comes with love. By thought you will never know him, but only by love. And this is the experience of silence that we embrace uh, every time we sit down to meditate. And there is nothing so much like God as silence, according to Meister Eckhart. Now, if we make this journey from a point of faith, or of, of a, in some way taking refuge in Jesus, or in some sense following Jesus as our guide, then the, what, we, what we discover through experience, what we find, will illuminate that faith. It will illuminate and help us to understand the, the meaning of the scriptures, the meaning of his words, and also to recognize him in his risen presence in our lives. So my Saint Augustine says, go back to your heart. It's going into the inner room. Go back to your heart. And if you are a believer, you will find Christ himself there speaking to you in silence. Go back to your heart and if you are a believer, you will find Christ there speaking to you in silence. So, so this narrow path that we're talking about, or the, the, the way, the knife edge of, of moderation, we've been using that image, is a way, is, is, is a path that goes somewhere, and it's this path into that, uh, that space of the heart that uh, all of the 
uh, mystical teachers uh, refer to. And it's a way, not of thought, but of, of, of love. It's not the ordinary kind of experience in which you can stand outside of it and name it and analyze it and reflect on it as if it was somebody else's experience, objectively. We can't do that. We have to give up that uh, position of being an observer in order to enter fully into the, into the gift of the presence itself. <laughs>